Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games. It's a podcast about board games. Surprising, I know. And we're back again with my friend, Mark Bigney. How are you doing today, Mark? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Always good. I've been thinking, though, the real money is in true crime. Is there any way to rebrand this as a true crime podcast? No, I tried. I, I did the numbers and there's just no way. Well, we could do like games we killed last week and news about missing people and why it doesn't matter. We might get accused of being callousness there, but you know, we might get some publicity on the strength of that. Well, games we killed last week, we do that anyway, right? So, Good point. Good Status point. quo. So this is a slow time of the year because all the big Kickstarters have come out trying to get out for Essen. All the ones that were late for Essen are now out. Now we're just waiting for some pretty big titles. So it's kind of a dead time. So my news is pretty pretty weak. So we're going to talk about the game we reviewed last year. Then we're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter, which on my end is going to be really short. Then our feature game, air quotation marks, which is an expansion for Feast for Odin. Then our topic of the week, which is going to be theme versus balance. Can theme outweigh balance or should balance always outweigh theme? And the other thing I want to say right now is the fact that Breakout is a convention in Toronto that's coming up March 15th to 17th that I will be at. And I'll be hanging out at the Bob McFadden table booth. If you want to come by and play some games, I should be there the whole time playing whatever. Feel free to come up, chit chat, play games. I will be there for all three days. Hope to see you there. We'll have all the official So Very Wrong About Games merchandise, which yeah. is to say our business cards, because that's, right. that's all we've got. I'll be giving out free passes for all episodes, so you can download any episode you want at any time. I'll be giving out all those coupons. Maybe Walker should come armed with a permanent marker and be willing to sign your forehead or something. There we go. Yeah. That, very, very prestigious. So I have a little bit of follow-up, actually, about our topic from last week, all because right. a couple of publishers reached out to me and wanted to discuss their opinions on the whole release cycle that we talked a little bit about. Namely, this idea that you run a Kickstarter and then immediately upon delivery of the first wave of the Kickstarter, you then kickstart the expansion or the reprint or what what have you. And we didn't really judge uh, publishers. We didn't issue any condemnations of this practice. We merely noted that this was an interesting evolution of of the, the hype cycle. And we could immediately understand why. But I really appreciated the perspective of a couple publishers. Basically, what they said was as follows. As consumers, we tend to focus a lot on the fact that it's good at promoting visual buzz and that it offloads a lot of the financial risk onto us, the consumers, as opposed to them, the producers. But for them, for, for smaller producers especially, and I'd forgotten about this, Kickstarter is primarily a means of generating free publicity because there's a whole bunch of secondary websites, whether it's KickTrack, which we use ourselves for our uh, soon-to-be recurring feature, our Pledge of Indifference, whether it's a whole bunch of other news coverage that is exclusively or primarily focused on Kickstarter, it's just a way for them to get big, flashy publicity and not have to pay any money for it. Now, of course, you can run ads for your upcoming Kickstarter. That's another way to generate buzz. This is actually reflected in sales figures. Someone someone pointed out, look, when I run a Kickstarter for another unrelated game, if I sell copies of my past games on it, which is a practice that you and I have varying opinions on, and there are different better and worse ways to do it, and let's call the worst ways queen games, and the better ways anyone that isn't queen games, but 
it was pointed out that sales of past games in a single Kickstarter can exceed the amount sold in normal retail distribution channels over a year or two years. And this wasn't just one person who pointed this out to me. It was a couple different people. And I just thought that, that was a really interesting perspective. Now, we may bemoan hype cycles and all that stuff, but it's important to, to, to recognize that for producers, Kickstarter is often just too good of a deal to pass up. Yeah, Kickstarter is ridiculous, right? Because they get 100% of the take, you know, minus what Kickstarter takes. And if they go through... And you know, Amazon payments or whoever's if, processing whatever, the payments. Whoever's doing it. If they go through normal retail, they take 40 per, uh, a huge cutoff because it has to go to the distributors. And then the distributors have to take a whole whack off because it has to go to all those stores. So they're getting like such a small amount, maybe 10 to 20%, whereas Kickstarter, they're getting 100%. Well, they're not so getting... Kickstarter is huge. Sure. Well, keep in mind, distributors are still going to eat, eat a lot of that money, right? It's just a question of which distributor, because they have to deal with shipping companies and fulfillment, and that often eats into it to a whole bunch. I don't, I don't know a whole lot about the, the back-end numbers, and for you, obviously, that's a, that's a big point of focus. I, I, for me, it's more about sales figures when we get access to sales figures, because that I find the most impressive element. When it's the case that the retail channel itself is failing to actually move copies, who's getting a cut of what is less important to me. It's just they're not moving the same number of copies. And again, Kickstarter as a platform to generate free publicity, I find an interesting issue and one that I often forget as a consumer. Gotcha. All right, moving on. Game we reviewed last year, Rising Sun. Uh, We haven't played it much. I have tried to get to the table. I was trying to reflect on why it's usually... Look no further, it's my fault. It's usually Mark's fault. Yep. But why? Why? Uh, And... and I can always force things. Like if I if I had said no, I really want to play Rising Sun. Yes, then we would play Rising Sun. That is true. So why haven't I said this? Well, I'm just wondering if it, is it all over the place? This is what I came to today. Is it this sort of all over the place? Can people stop you from just doing you know arbitrary things? You know, is there a, a path through the game that is interesting? Buying monsters, getting all these cards when people can just take them from you and you have no chance. People will attack you and you have no, not that you have no reason why, but they're trying to take things too. So you can't really form a strategy because you have four to five other people taking land away from you. So it just seems to be like when I reflect back on it, it just seems to be a game that's all over the place, but I still really enjoy it. The models are fantastic. It still does flow fairly well, but for for like a linear strategy or going into the game saying, I'm going to try this, it, it seems to be all over the place in reflection. Over the past year, I think I've played it once or twice, literally. And I really do stand by what I said in the re- in the review. And if anything, my misgivings that I expressed last year have really been amplified. And I, I, I'd like to focus it on the, the, the same four questions that we asked last week about 51st State. One of them is, you know, we just addressed the first one, do we still play it? And the answer is, for me, no, I have a preference not to. For you, not really, because you haven't felt the need to overcome my, my resistance, which is a separate issue. And... You know, does it still hold up? Do, are there any broken strategies? I don't really care if there are any broken dominant strategies. I remember, you know, when we talked a little bit about this, there's always discussion about is X clan overpowered, particularly the Fox clan. That's the one that keeps coming up. And my response is I don't care because it's not fun to play as the Fox clan and it's not fun to play against the Fox clan. Any one of these monolithic, monomaniacal, single note strategies, whether they're too strong or too weak, I'm indifferent because they are not enjoyable. If your goal in the game is to march into a battlefield and ritualistically kill all your soldiers over and over, on top of that of being ridiculous, I don't think it's particularly fun. And it's not, it's usually not in other players' interest to to stop that. And in that sense, my opinion hasn't really changed. It's just solidified. The way you say being all over the place, the way I look at it is 
rising sun for you to be able to get what you need to do. All your ducks need to be in a row. And there's any number of a million things that could go wrong, either by virtue of a mistake you made, in which case that's all right. That's one thing. Or by virtue of a completely random intersection of a whole bunch of other things that happened, which can include but are not limited to things like turn order or where you're seated next to various other people in turn order or a completely arbitrary decision based on your quote unquote teammate or any number of other things, which I find less satisfying. And so that and in that sense, where it's situated in terms of, you know, the weird dudes on a map games, which is the, the rough category in which we situate it, especially when compared to other more recent offerings like Lords of Hellas, which we both really like which is less fragile. It's still all over the place. There's a lot of stuff going on in Lords of Palace, and you can have, uh, and there's been some discussion in the guild about how well-balanced or how interesting these things are against each other. But I find it a less fragile game overall than Rising Sun. And I agree with you. It's such a beautiful game. I, I always want to like it more than I do, but anytime anyone suggests it, usually you, I'm like, eh, there's other stuff I'd rather do. Exactly. That is Rising Sun from Simon Games and uh, designed by Eric Lang. So next, we're going to do games we played this week. So I actually played Cerebri of the Inside World this week. And I mentioned this in part because I want to stress how rare this is. Usually when we review a game for our feature game, there's usually a sort of a... Um, almost a death march to play it a lot so that we can really have our head around the design and really talk about it from a nuanced level because whether or not we're successful at that, that's kind of our brand and we really want to try to go a little bit more in depth than a lot of other you know surface level kind of stuff. Whether we're good at that or not, irre- irrelevant. And so to a certain extent, because I'm one of those guys with a massive game collection and I always want variety and I'm trying new things all the time and I was like this even before I was a professional game reviewer. <coughs> <coughs> Usually after we review a game, I want a cooling off period. And usually it's a a week or two before I return to something, even if I really like it. But we were going to a common game day at a local game store. And I was like, I want to play Cerebri again. Screw it. And I had a great time. Introduced two new players to the game who took to it very well, all things considered. I stand by what we said. Cerebri is a game with lots of rules. So I was bracing myself for for a little bit of the pain. I I commented on this in Twitter, actually. One thing about Cerebri, the way that manifests in a very unpleasant way, is the number of times I have to say, no, you can't do that, is way too high. Rules corrections are one thing, but telling someone specifically, you can't do this thing that you thought you could do or that you want to do, it's not pleasant as a rules explainer. It makes me feel like I'm some sort of school marm rather than someone actively involved in engaging in fun activity. Especially when it goes twice in a row, like you say, no, you can't do that. And then they work out another whole thing and they try something else and it's like, no, you can't do that either. Yeah. That's rough. Or if even it's just one of those areas, like particularly with respect to fortifications, where which is something I flagged as being a particularly pointy bit of rules grit, where you say, okay, no, 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 actions work this way. And they're like, all right, fine. Then I guess I'll do this fortification. So it's like, oh, actually, no, that action works differently from the other actions. You can't do that way either. Which, it's just no fun for anybody. All of that said, I had a great time with Cerebri, and so did everyone else at the table. This was this was unanimous consent that it was a fun game. People who do, normally don't gravitate towards heavier stuff, some of them have taken a surprisingly strong liking to Cerebria. It's 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 a winner, and the fact that I wanted to play it again after playing it so, so much in short succession, I think it's a testament to, to how solid the game design is, and I'm completely blown away by how much I like it. And I'm looking forward to future plays, so that was Cerebria the Inside World. Well, well while you were playing that, we played City of the Gods, Teotihuacan, no, take it. Teotihuacan, City of the Gods. Take it to Christopher Walken. City of the Gods. We played City of the Gods, and I'm I'm still liking it, still loving it, and what I'm liking about it now is the starting tiles. I'm just using those starting tiles to force me into different 
uh, ways to play and different strategies. And he's like, oh, okay, now I get these starting resources. I'm going to totally, you know, do this a different way, concentrate more on this particular part and try to, you know, bend the rules and see if I can break the game this way. Because this is what Mike Walker does, is he takes a particular mechanism and sees if he can break the game that way. Everyone loved it. Another great game of City of the Gods. Have you found a way to break it yet? Not yet. Good luck. Played another game of Spirit Island. I'm now up to about 50 plays of the published version of Spirit Island. This is the co-op game by uh, Eric Royce that everyone other than Walker loves. And I'm still not tired of Spirit Island, but I will say this. One thing I have noticed over not the last play, but a couple of plays before that, is that I'm not terribly interested in playing games at the easiest difficulty level anymore. We commented during the review that at the basic difficulty level, your win rate is upwards of 80%. And that's by design. The, the, the designer, Eric Royce, has said, you know, we expected about an 85 to 90% win rate at difficulty level zero, which is the sort of base game out the box without any adversaries or scenarios included. I've heard reports from people on the internet talking about how it's, you know, impossible to win and how it's so difficult. I don't know what they're doing wrong, but I have to assume they're doing something wrong, either in terms of rules or process. I don't know. Anyway, I think I'm done with Spurt Island at difficulty level zero. It used to be the case that I was just happy to just engage with the mechanisms, even at difficulty level zero. I'm I'm past that. But again, this is a very this is a very narrow sort of criticism, right? I'm 50 games in, and now I'm I'm insisting that I need the challenge. The fact that I was willing to be not challenged for several dozen games is is reasonably impressive because a lot of those games of of the ones I've logged on Board Game Geek were new players or people who didn't want to be challenged necessarily or wanted the easy win or trying new spirit whatever what have you. Uh, but I'm now at the position where I, I really want to be challenged. And, and we were we, we took a difficulty level four uh, scenario. We we challenged the uh, Swedes, at, uh, sorry, the Prussians, not the Swedes, uh, at level two, which is difficulty level four. There's this interesting little matrix in terms of the scenarios. And it was a great time. I played my favorite spirit, which is Ocean's Hungry Grasp. I love drowning things. And it was great. And I'm definitely not tired of the game. I just insisted it have to be in a certain kind of environment. And the fact, which I think is a lot of legs for a game. And if more games were only started to show their limitations with me and that I only want to play in certain contexts after 40 games, that'd be pretty good. We've even talked you into playing uh, Sentinels of the Multiverse on advanced levels now. So that's good. Here's the difference, though, and this is actually one of the reasons why I think Spirit Island has so many legs. Sentinels of the Multiverse, when it gets difficult... Because it's such an arbitrary and relatively simplistic game, and I love Sentinels of the Multiverse, but we've commented before, it's pretty dumb. And the way that it does difficulty is often about really hamstringing you in ways that I don't find fun. For example, there's a whole bunch of boss cards in in most of the uh, enemies that are just like, get rid of all your equipment or get rid of all your ongoing cards. But that's what makes the heroes fun in some of the heroes. And so getting rid of all your toys, I don't find enjoyable. Spirit Island doesn't get hard that way. Spirit Island complicates or escalates the challenge of solving an engaging tactical and strategic puzzle while still giving you all your toys. And so that's one of the reasons why, well, both from the same publisher even, why two co-op games can be very different in terms of how it scales. I don't mind easy victories in Sentinels of the Multiverse, again, because it's just about, hey, here's, here's some toys, go do some stuff. Just when it tries to make things more difficult, it doesn't expand the strategic horizons. So, And that was Spirit Island. Next up, I played Mysterium, but not actually Mysterium. I played the Polish edition. I'm not even going to you know, attempt the Polish name. I think it's Tajemnicze de Mostwo, but I'm, I'm definitely getting it wrong. But you can play Mysterium however you like. It's, it's very, it's, you can use Dixit cards. Apparently you can use, you can do 
You can mysterium however you wish. You do you. <laughs> is it is a saying that we've been using lately, or I have anyway? No one has ever said that, including you. All right. And it's a great game. We play it fairly frequently just because it's nice and easy, easy to teach new players, very fun to uh, knock the ghost and ask him why what he was thinking and why he hates us so much. And it's a game where a ghost has witnessed a murder, maybe even his own. And the players have some sort of clues and they're scattered all over the place. And then the ghost is, you know, gives you these abstract, uh, like Dixit cards, which is, you know, abstract art, weird, funky art things. And he tries to point you towards certain clues that are associated to certain players and they move up this ladder. Okay. They guess that one, right. And they have to go up this sort of ladder thing. And once they get to the end, it's win-win. This is the first time we actually played with the expansion to the Polish version. I'm not even going to bother to try to pronounce it. It's translated as Hidden Signs, which introduces a new gameplay mode, which we didn't try, and just a whole bunch of new cards, new artwork, new murder weapons, new locations, new people. And the reason why why we have the Polish version, why we play the Polish version, is I vastly prefer the art style. And I think that the rules changes introduced in the quote-unquote North American version, the Asmodee version, are uh, really quite bad. The only reason why I would prefer the Mysterium version over Taim Nietzsche de Mostvo, and this is not trivial, is the beautiful player screen for the ghost to organize all the cards. We, we have to use a, a very large card holder in order to get it done, which is not included in the game. It's a necessary accessory. And if that's the reason why you prefer Mysterium over another version, if you have access to both, more power to you because I, I certainly can't blame you. There's actually an Italian screen that works with this version. I think I could get it for about 40 bucks. I can't bring myself to even spend our Patreon money on something like that. It just seems so frivolous. But maybe someday I'll break down and do it. I've, I've certainly spent more for less in, in the past. The fact that we enjoy Codenames and Mysterium and Deception... And we all want to keep them in, uh, them all in rotation. We all enjoy them for their own strengths. I think it's just a testament to the core fun of this kind of association and triggering different kinds of association. It's a beautiful game, and you really can explain it in about five seconds to somebody. You're going to get some pictures. Try to associate it with this picture. We're done. Because... <laughs> like in terms of, of setup and stuff, it's a little bit more cumbersome than, say, Deception, Murder in Hong Kong. But in Deception, Murder in Hong Kong, you have to explain, okay, well, there's a murderer, and this is what the clues could mean, and you're trying to... No, no, no. In Mysterium, it's really straightforward. It had been too long. It had been several months. I agreed. It stayed in our rotation for a reason. We've been playing it uh, pretty much on the reg. And I've, uh, just as a, another minor footnote, I've really been impressed by the different kinds of gamers that really like Mysterium. We know a whole bunch of people that don't like co-ops or are indifferent to co-ops or don't really like interpretation and really, you know, they want to play a game with fighting in it. But we were about Mysterium and all these people that are like, where's the fighting? I want to fight somebody. It's like, oh, I'll play Mysterium. That sounds great. Definite vote for Mysterium, whichever version you have. Smoke him if you got him is, is something that I say all the time. All the time. All the time. Every day I say smoke him if you got him. I don't I don't. I kind of feel bad for you how many times you must have to edit that out of the podcast. I actually have a macro that automatically filters it out. Oh, very nice. Very much like a filter on a cigarette, which you might smoke if you have them. There you go. And that's Mysterium. I played Millennium Blades. I actually tried the solo version because there's a solo slash co-op version introduced in the first expansion set rotation. Well, I should say first major expansion because there's about five or six mini expansions that I don't have access to. And it was it was interesting. It's kind of like a very hard challenge whereby you have to build your deck for spec because Millennium Blades is all about building your quote-unquote deck for a coming tournament. And the 
solo co-op mode just has this sort of boss deck, which is brutally unfair in the way that co-op modes and, and solo AIs often are. But it's in a very interesting way because the arc, I talked about this a few weeks ago when, when talking about Millennium Blades for the first time in a while. It's interesting when you really have to retool your deck to really try to shift to pivot to deal with the threats that are coming at you. But the way that a solo game of Millennium Blades works is in, in the first tournament, at least in, in my experience, the AI deck is going to crush you mercilessly because you haven't enough time to make your deck good. Certainly not good enough. Which is good because if, if you had a, a fighting chance in the first tournament, well, then the game would just be over because the AI deck doesn't improve over the course of the game. And so you really have to spend each deck building phase to be like, all right, I have to deal with the following set of jerk moves that I know that the boss deck is going to throw at me. I found it surprisingly fun. I don't know that I'd want to deal with that much, that many components in a solo game. I've commented before that when I do my solo gaming, I want it to be relatively component light so I don't feel like I'm just pushing chits around all the uh, all the time. And there's you know a lot of cards to be floated around. But if you've got a stable market deck in Millennium Blades, you can just leave it in the box. It's not a huge deal. So all in all, I'd say that the solo version of Millennium Blades is surprisingly cute, and it's worth a, worth a look if you're into that kind of thing. If you do solo gaming and you like Millennium Blades, it's certainly worth a gander. And the expansion has got a tremendous amount of value in the box anyhow in set rotation. Uh, there's a Kickstarter for the next expansion coming up called Collusion, and I, I don't really have an opinion on that yet. I haven't taken a hard look. Maybe I will, will later. But that was my experience with solo Millennium Blades. We, once again, because we do it quite often, got Shadow Rift out to the table, and we lost again. We were fighting the Storm Lords. It was yet another brutal... Actually, we lost fairly quickly. We did. Yeah, but I still still love it. It's a, it's, it seems to be a solid system, and it's interesting. It it's, it's all sort of makes sense. You know, you're, you're, village, you're protecting this village, your villagers die, they become corpses, you know, and you have to try to keep the corpses to a minimum, i.e., you know, you don't want all your villagers to die. You also want to welcome in new villagers to sort of, you know, up the population. And, you know, all these rifts open up and you got to sort of, you know, close them so the monsters don't start pouring out into the village. And, and the mechanics, I find the mechanics of the enemies very interesting because every time they shift over, they always do some sort of you know, different thing, but it's very straightforward and basic, you know, kill this kind of thing. But it's it's very interesting. You can sort of, you know, anticipate what they're going to do and say, okay, that's a threat right away. Let's take care of that. And that part of the game, I find it very, and it seems to flow fairly well. And I think that's why we enjoy playing it. I'm getting less and less enamored with Shadow Rift over time for two primary reasons. One of them is the publisher support has been truly execrable. We, I've complained about this before, and I'm going to keep bringing it up every time it's mentioned. They don't have rules for the expansion material. They don't include rules documents, which is a problem because how you integrate the new villagers and wandering villagers into the deck every time we play... We all bust out our phones and try to find the document that I printed off once and is in my copy in my basement, but is not in your copy because there are different ways to do it and we have to decide how to do it. They they did six different ways to do it and we got to, you know, try to find the most, you know, uh, up-to-date one. And this could be solved if they would be willing to include a rule sheet in any expansion that they ever published, which they refused to do, even though the designer, after the release of the first expansion, said he really felt that they ought to have done it. So I'm, I'm willing to blame Game Salute on this one. Uh, so they really dropped the ball there. And the other, this is actually the main reason why I didn't back the latest expansion, Boomtown. So I'm I'm pretty much done with buying more Shadow Rift stuff until it's clear that they're willing to support it to a, to a base level. And the other problem that I have is that the, the victory conditions feel a little bit off. There are two ways to win theoretically, but one of them is vastly easier than the other. It's certainly cheaper and faster. And in games like this, it's mostly a siege mentality. So faster is the better way to do it. 
but it's driven, no matter which way you decide to win, it's basically leans heavily on the luck of a draw, which in, in deck building games is just part of the beast, you know? Yep. You're going to just be at the mercy of, of how the distribution of your cards come up. But in order to either build walls or seal shadow, which are the two broad ways to win the game, you need to have a good hand. Now, if you if your deck is flooded with a whole bunch of heroism, then getting a good hand is easier than than, than not. But we, that's literally how we lost our game because you know, the loss conditions are also based on the random distribution of a given quote unquote hand of cards. Although it's it's even on the table, and that intersection just it, it kind of rubs me the wrong way. So it becomes a little bit one note. It becomes a little bit rote. Uh, the decision making becomes a little less engaging because again, there's the there's there's the smart way to play versus the interesting way to play sometimes and i yes. hate that tension so shadow is good i'm not going to turn it down it definitely isn't on the list of rising sun uh mark is going to shoot down walker's hopes and dreams i'm just going to you know relay that to the rest of my life but i think that shadow Rift was a great property that has been badly mismanaged and needed a little bit of fine tuning that it's probably never going to get which is a bit of a shame because other than that i think it could it could have been a top tier co-op deck builder agreed and that is shadow rift by game salute Last game I want to talk about last week is a game called Dawning the Purple. Now, in full disclosure, this is a game we got as a review copy. Walker hasn't played it yet. We're going to play it a couple more times. At least, well, I'm going to play it a couple more times, and I'm definitely going to show it to Walker, so we're going to have more to say about it later. But in terms of first impressions, this is a three-player game about the sort of mid-Roman Empire in the, the late second century. And it gets a lot of things right and a lot of things that really intrigue me. It's got this interplay between various elements of political forces. You might run the Senate. You might be the emperor. You might be the heir to the emperor. You have to worry about your own military retinue. The emperor has to worry about legions and feeding people. And there's all this uh, all this sort of stuff going on. And that interplay, especially in more accessible games, which Donning the Purple absolutely is, always gets me intrigued and interested. And I think in terms of the overall sort of scope and broad brush of history, and I emphasize very broad because historically speaking, very few of the things that happen in Dawning the Purple make any kind of sense at all, I really like. It's got this notion of you having uh, your, your, your patron dying and then inheriting the role from someone else in the family. So you have to manage your resources in that sense because dying is bad. You lose points. But sometimes you have to. Uh, the actions are relatively straightforward and, and there's a tension about doing different kinds of things. The big problem is, and I'm hoping that this is addressed in subsequent plays, and more to follow, obviously, is that a lot of this comes down to take that cards. This issue of senatorial control is a bizarre mechanism whereby whoever has the oldest senator just controls the Senate. It's not about who has more senators or greater influence or anything. It's just whoever's the last one. Uh, so you end up in bizarre situations where I might want to murder that senator, and it's relatively easy to murder senators, but I don't want to throw it to whoever's next in line. I'd rather do something else. This whole notion of who is heir to the who's heir to being emperor, there are all these mechanisms about getting it in place, and it's a complicated, time-consuming, difficult thing to do, and that's all good. And then there's a take that card that says you're the heir now. So that's not so hot. And so a lot of these elements about shifting control and power dynamics, although interesting in theory, hit the ground in a very take that card kind of way, which is kind of unsatisfying. I'm hoping that experience will mitigate this, but I'm not exactly sure how that might work. Uh, so more to follow, and I'm looking forward to hearing uh, Walker's take on it. But that was my early impressions of Donning the Purple. And that is the games we played last week. Now on to the news and why it really doesn't matter. So, Mark, what did you find out that's overly exciting this week? I don't know about overly exciting. I agree with you. We're kind of in the fallow period. I blame Chinese New Year, but I, I blame most things on Chinese New Year. 
And one thing I've noticed is that next month we're going to get a second edition of Hanabi Deluxe. Hanabi Deluxe 2, very inventively called. Ooh, that's a reach. I don't think I've ever played Hanabi with you before. I've never played it, period. You've never played Hanabi? No. Oh, that's a shame. Hanabi's cute. I really like Hanabi. And it's it's by uh, Antoine Boza, who does very, very interesting stuff and very different stuff. We're not fans of Seven Wonders, but a lot of his other stuff. I is played the cool. Sherlock Holmes version. Baker Street. Yeah, yes. I, I've never played that one. But anyway, they're not the same game. I know people who, who like one and not the other. But anyhow, Hanabi Deluxe is a beautiful production. It's got these lovely bake-like pieces that are kind of like lovely black dominoes, except not dominoes. They've got these pretty little firework symbols on them. And it's a really, really good edition of a, of a very, very nice game. The second one is going to have, uh, the only salient difference is just going to have six extra tiles for the so-called artisan variant, because all that we talk about now is artisanal games. And uh, I'm looking forward to that. And if you don't, if you are a Hanabi fan and you're just have the, the simple deck of cards and you're interested in something substantially heavier, but also substantially prettier and makes a lovely clacking noise, then uh, Hanabi Deluxe w- it will be right up your alley. Oh, you can probably stand them up in front of you too, so you don't have to get your sweaty, greasy, grimy paws all over the cards. That is also a benefit, yes. I'm bringing up Dice Forge Rebellion only because when Dice Forge first came out, I played it a couple times. I was like, eh. This will be great when an expansion comes out. And <laughs> here we are. So Dice Force Rebellion, more stuff for Dice Forge. I thought that's what it needed. If it had like a huge support and got tons of stuff, I think it would only get better. More stuff for Dice Forge, the better as far as I'm concerned. That's all I have to say about that. Chicago Express is one of my favorite trainee type games. It's certainly not a hardcore game uh, in the train genre. You know, the 18xx diehards will tell you that if it's not an 18xx game, it's not really a train game. It's just a game with trains, which is exactly the kind of nonsense distinction that I deploy with respect to war games. So I have to extend them grudging respect for that little distinction without a difference. At any rate, Winsome Games, who initially published Wabash Cannonball, which then Queen Games republished as Chicago Express, they're going through a similar process. Uh, Capstone Games is reprinting Irish Gage, which was put out by Winsome for one of their Essen packages. And if you know anything about the distribution method of Winsome Games, and there's a lot to be said about Winsome Games and how they distribute games, uh, well, actually, I'll, I'll share one anecdote after this. It's very difficult to get your hands on a copy after they've produced it. And we're talking about paper maps and cubes, but Capstone is giving a graphical overhaul, as you might imagine. I haven't played Irish Gage, but it, I'm, I'm a big fan of a lot of Winsome Games design principles. And so I'm looking forward to that getting wider distribution. Now my anecdote. When I initially contacted John Borer, the guy who's behind Winsome Games, because he was advertising that he was selling copies of Wabash Cannibal online, he insisted that he uh, needed your Board Game Geek user profile, that he would go and check your rankings of other games to see if he would be willing to sell you the game, because he didn't want to sell you the game if he thought that you weren't going to be able to handle it or understand it. And so that was he, a, he pre-screened his yes, customers. Yes, he pre-screened his customers, which wow. I'm not sure what to make of that, even all these years later. I can't tell if it's the move of a guy who cares about his customer base and doesn't want people to be disappointed. Or if it's a supreme elitist move by somebody. <laughs> wow. It's definitely interesting. I'll give it that much. So yeah. anyway, Capstone Games is going to be publishing Irish Gage. I'm looking forward to trying that. Anyway, Irish Games by Capstone will be coming out in the coming years. All right. My last bit of news, only because I couldn't find anything else. Sailor Moon, Truth or Bluff. You know, Wait, you, what? Yeah. <laughs> if you're a Sailor Moon fan. And you I like, kind of am. And, I mean, you like, and you like social deduction. Wait, what? Well, it's Truth or Bluff. So it's going to be... It's it's gonna it's gonna be I mean, it could be some sort of social deduction game with Sailor Moon. 
Well, now I'm gonna have to look into this because if it's a social deduction oh, here, game, here we go right here. Hilar- hilarious party game of deception and misdirection features super deformed characters of your favorite. Oh, I don't like the super deformed. Oh, oh, they're no. just chibis. That's all. Yeah, that, that's what super, that's what super deformed means. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the first time. I do you even anime, bro? Yeah, I do. I do, and that's the first time. I, I just, anyway, uh, accommodates three to eight players. Truth or Buff joins. Our first licensed game, Sailor Moon Crystal Dice Challenge, as we grow our line of Sailor Moon offerings. All right, I'm going to look into that. <laughs> Both Truth or Bluff and Season 3 expansion for Dice Challenge will be shipped. Oh, yeah, anyway, I know what needs to Yeah, okay. Yeah, we're done with that. Yeah, we're done with that. Final bit of news is an interesting sort of fallout from the Chinese counterfeit market. Because as, as anybody who's uh, done any business on the Amazon marketplace or has read anything about uh, game distribution in Asia will tell you that Chinese knockoffs are a huge deal. So White Goblin Games, which is a Dutch publisher, they do some of their own in-house stuff and they also distribute a lot of games in various parts of Europe, was going to be partnering with Yoka, which is a games company in China to do a variety of their Chinese distribution. But then they discovered that Yoka also publishes a whole bunch of knockoffs of a bunch of other games, like, for example, Bang and a couple of other things were listed there. And so as a result, White Goblin has publicly severed all their ties with this company. And they said, look, we're not going to do this. And this is I find this interesting for a number of reasons. Number one, that these knockoff companies also want to do legit business with some international distributors, which seems like a strange business model. But I mean, hey, Smoke them if you got them, as I'm, as I'm known to say all the, time. all the time. And I really appreciate the fact that White Goblin is willing to be transparent about this and say, look, no, we think these people are bad actors and we're not going to do business with them. And uh, we think that they should be publicly identified as bad actors. So that is an interesting development in the ongoing challenge to protect intellectual property in uh, various foreign markets. Oh, good on them. And that is all of the news. All the news. All the news that you'll ever need to know in the board game industry this week. Yep, yep. And why it doesn't matter. I, in fact, encourage you not to read or listen to anything else about anything over the course of the next week or so. Because there's nothing else of consequence that is transpiring in the world. Obviously. Now, on to the feature expansion of the week, which is... A Feast for Odin, the Norwegians. This was put up by Gernot Kupke and Uwe Rosenberg last year at Feuerlandspiel, they who published Feast for Odin. Uh, Gernot Kupke does not have any design credits on the original Feast for Odin, so that's some new design work on his part. But this is indeed, as Walker says, an expansion. We talked a lot about A Feast for Odin in our review of the game last year. If you haven't listened to that review, we'll just sit here and wait for you to listen to that. All right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's number uh, 37. You just made that up. I totally did. You don't know what number it is. Anyway, (laughs) and we're back. Thank you for joining us. So this is the first time we've actually done an expansion as a feature game. We've talked about other games with expansions, and we've reviewed older games with expansions when the expansion came up, but then we reviewed the base game as well. This is the first time that we've reviewed a base game and then reviewed the expansion itself. Now, this can be representative of a number of things. Well, they're going to find it, though. Didn't we do, like, a Scythe expansion? I think we did. Yes, we did. We talked about the Wind Gambit. Yes. But we didn't review the... Ba- we've never reviewed the base game of Scythe. That is correct. No, I just thought you said this is the first time we've done an expansion. Uh, sure. It's the first time we've done an expansion in addition to doing the base game. Anyway, so I'd like to do it as uh, focusing it on a number of questions that I think any expansion needs to be evaluated under. But before that, let's get to what the new stuff that it adds. One of the things I'd like to stress right off the bat, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago when we played it the first time, was there are no new cards. Uwe Rosenberg games, when they have lots of cards in them, as A Feast for Odin does, and when they have expansions, they tend to introduce new cards. There are new new cards in the the Norwegians. 
which I find is I have it under my good points, right? Because they have yep. a nice little appendix book, has all the cards in it. If they just added more, then that would, you know, yet another document that you'd have to keep near the table. So I was thankful, and I thought there was enough that came in the base game. They didn't need any more cards. I agree entirely. I mentioned this not as a shortcoming. It's just as, to differentiate it from a lot of his other expansion happy games, specifically Agricola. Agricola, the expansions are almost entirely card-driven. Uh, and always have decks of new cards. And this is the first of several planned major expansions to A Feast for Odin. Well, just quickly, they do have two small expansions that already came out. They had a two-map uh, expansion, like two little island expansions that came out. Yes, exploration boards. And yes. then they had another mini expansion, that, but it had a bunch of uh, special items. There's a special item board, and there's a, there was a mini expansion that gave you a bunch of extra you know, special items. It was a Christmas promo, yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. What is in this new expansion if it doesn't have cards? Well... The first thing, which I think is the biggest thing, is it has new board. A new action board, because one of the things we stressed in the review of He's for Odin is a lot of the action is driven by this massive grid of special actions, and they've they've changed that up in the expansion. Correct. Now, but that being said, they've added another whole row. In the first game, they had four rows, you know, uh, action spaces take one, two, or three or four workers, and now there's a final row that has even more action. So it might have, you know, worked out to be almost the same, but they did definitely streamline, make it more accessible, and I think make it easier to teach because everything seems to be more concentrated on the board so you can see exactly where the actions take place of what you want to do. Well, part of the reason why that is is because the board now scales with the number of players. And that, for me, is the biggest advantage straight off the bat, the biggest added value that the Norwegians adds to A Feast for Odin. And in the in the base game, there was only the slightest nod to different player counts in terms of how the board altered. Just the, the, the barest whisper. Now, at each player count, you don't have a single board. You still have, you have these three different basically tiles, large tiles, that you can flip so you have a different configuration every time with one, two, or three, or four players. As a result, the board always feels more crowded. And for me, that's great, because one of the key objections we had to the base game of Feast for Odin was... Is you could do anything you want. You could do more or less anything you want. Like over sixty actions, so you could go anywhere you want. Even if you know what you take, what you wanted was taken, there was always something else. And what this one also seemed to do, it seemed to cut back on the amount of easy food you can get. We talked about it, but it didn't really pan out a little bit for you on that last game because you, you know, were a little, little too nice to your Vikings. They were getting these giant fruit baskets, so obviously you were feeling the pinch a little bit. So it made the easy food harder to get. And so the feasting, which is uh, uh, for those who've played, at the end of the turn, you have to feed all your Vikings and you have to line up your food. So it made that a little harder to achieve, I think. So there, right off the bat, my two biggest criticisms of A Feast for Odin already being addressed, even if a little. Not enough player interaction because people aren't getting in your way because you can always go and do what you want to do, almost. And number two, feeding your workers that there was a certain degree of looseness in the system. I prefer my Uwe Rosenberg games tight where I feel like I'm under the gun. Now, you don't like games where feeding your workers introduces serious pressure. And I agree with you. I felt more pressure feeding my workers. How did you feel that I as did, a change? I did not have it. Oh, okay. So you didn't feel any any difference in terms of the pressure. No, it worked out that I was doing a heavy migration strategy. So it sort of panned out that way, right? So I didn't need as much food as as normal, right? That is true. And we're going to circle back to that a little bit later because I'm going to be asking uh, a series of questions about 
you know, pre-existing strategies. Let's go through a little bit more about new, more new stuff that's added the expansion. So, tons of animals. Right now we have horses, we have pigs. They really wanted to concentrate more on developing this animal strategy, pregnant animals. And I think it really added more to the game. There's more... Uh, more spaces to get animals, more stuff you could get from animals, like the milk and the, sh- and the wool and the bacon and more ways to feed, more things to do with animals. Although the spaces were fairly limited of where you got animals. So if you're playing a four-player game, not everyone got to, you know, really get into getting the animals. So other than that, I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, in the base game, animals were there, and they didn't feel really ancillary or tacked on because the virtue that we identified of A Feast for Odin and is still there is it feels a little sandboxy in that you can go and do any number of different things. But animals never really felt particularly worth it, and they certainly weren't an avenue of specialization. And that isn't necessarily a problem. It was just a feature or at least a characteristic of the base game. But now in the Norwegians, in addition to the fact that there are new animals to go get, the animal spaces have now been beefed up and have been given a greater prominence at the same time as making the animals harder to get. So you feel like there's a significant payoff. You get to feel special for having gone to the effort of going and getting these animals. And I really think that's a tremendous... A shot in the arm in terms of the sheer variety of things to do in the game. I, when playing with the Norwegians, finally went in an animal-heavy strategy, and it was very lucrative. One of the reasons why I was feeding my Vikings fruit, which you're absolutely right, is a tremendous waste. They don't appreciate it. They really some, didn't. Some of them even like scurvy. I don't understand. Uh, but, you know, I was giving them pears, and they were like, where's the salt meat? And it was a whole thing. It was a thing. But I had those because there's this animal space that takes four workers, but then if you have enough animals, you're just drowning in goods. And I reliably went and did that, which it felt novel. It was it was a new experience, which ideally expansions ought to offer. So I really like how they specifically looked at the, the base game and said, okay, what are the elements that we already had in the base game? Because there's already tremendous variety. How can we beef up, no pun intended, those specific areas? All right. Next point is victory point tokens. In the game, there's all sorts of ways to get these occupation cards. Uh, every time you play three workers out, there's spaces that get you the cards. A lot of the times, they're just sitting in your tableau area, never played. So what they did is they introduced these victory point tokens. So when you uh, are able to play an occupation, you can just discard it instead and just get straight up victory points. I thought that was an interesting way because, like I said, a lot of times they just sit on your on your board and you never use them because they don't feed into your particular strategy or it's just too expensive to play them. Now you can get victory points for them, so it made it way more sense to play them. It was desperately unsatisfying in A Feast for Odin to play an occupation just for the victory points. I always felt that was a little bit disappointing, especially because a lot of them were, as you say, very specialized. You know, if you're not getting any animals, if you're not getting colonization, if you're never whaling, if you're not raiding, if you don't lay snares, whatever, 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 then various occupations would be a waste of time. And so it, it's it's nice to have a little bit of a safety valve to just acknowledge that you've got all these cards. Well, here's at least a value to them other than just playing them just for the points. For, for whatever reason, and I can't begin to explain this, maybe you have an intuition. If I go to an action space and I play this thematically colored occupation just for the victory point value at the end of the game, that feels to me like a waste. But on the other hand, if I go and I discard a card just to get this victory point chip, then I feel like I've done something clever. So that's <laughs> it, very weird for sure. Okay, so you agree with me. I'm I glad agree. I'm not alone yes, because no, it's no. certainly I'm having difficulty explaining why it Sometimes works that you're doing way. Almost exactly, you know, you're getting the same amount of points almost, but it's yep. just a different mechanism. But it doesn't, it doesn't feel as cheap. There you go. I'm glad. I'm glad you know where I'm coming from here. 
Next thing, we've already alluded to it. They have this, at the very end of the board is this new row of actions you can do. And if you take one of these actions, it's the last action you're going to take in the round. And you use one or two workers. It's the same no matter how many workers you use. And I think it really opens up the decision-making of the game because you can sort of plan out, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. I want to make sure that I have one worker left because even though these actions only take one or two workers, they are semi-powerful because, you know, they're the last action you're allowed to take for that turn. And I think they did a great job of just opening up the decision space and making you plan out your turn more. I was surprised how much tension it introduced. The number of times, especially in the early rounds where Vikings are scarce, where I really didn't know, do I want to take that three Viking action that I really want? Oh, but then I'm out of workers and I don't get to do that last column action. Sometimes you should do that and sometimes you should save the Viking. It was it was impressive. I was very pleased by how it opened up the decision space. Then they have these new random unique huts, which is very interesting. They're, during, are, they're artisanal. Artisanal huts. I'm very sorry. So... During the normal Feast for Odin, they have all sorts of different buildings you can you can grab. You can also grab islands. You fill them up. These, they're all sorts of different, like there's the Lumberjack Hut. They're all named. They're all unique. You shuffle them up. You deal them out at the beginning of the turn. And then either you can build them during the game or you cannot. And I think they are they did a great job of giving them all their own unique flavor and, and sort of theme. You know what I mean? You know, you have to do this to get that. And it all made sense. And it was very interesting. A little bit of asymmetry at the start of a game with minimal rules overhead is always a good thing, I think. Especially when the game is open and with as much variety as A Feast for Odin. And I, I really do like it. It's, it's a very, very minor thing. You shouldn't overblow the, the impact of these. I've, I have a roughly 50-50 rate of building them or not. But they're cute and they're nice. And uh, having, having that extra little bit of variety and, and new and interesting stuff is good. My last extra bit and or good point is there's more special tiles. New exploration boards, you mean, the, the new no, colonies? No, the new special uh, item tiles. Ah, yes. They have new, you know, metal shirts or new shapes that you can deploy out to your board to cover up vic- negative victory points. And there seems to be uh, easier access to all of the special pieces in general, it felt to me. They have a third tray. Anyone familiar with the game knows that they have they, they have these plastic sorting trays, which are 100% necessary for the game. Kudos to the publisher for recognizing that this was not optional. So no one has to go out and buy a Plano organizer or a tackle box or what have you. It comes in the game, and the expansion introduces a third box with only two of the four rows are used, but based on how the upgrade system works and the four colors of goods, you still needed to have all these goods organized the same way. And that's also where you hold the new animals. What I like in terms of the new expansion boards, and this is done shockingly rarely, well, or all too infrequently, is they've updated the iconography, both on the action boards and on the expedition boards, the colony, the, the, the new colonies, to harmonize and make it so that going forward, they are all modular and can be introduced or or mixed and matched however you want. In the base game of A Feast for Odin, they made reference to specific colonies that you could go find based on specific action spaces. And then when they started introducing new boards, that didn't work. And so you had to say, well, you know, you could found Terra del Fuego when you would normally be able to found some other place specifically listed by name. And that's just awkward and uh, it's a rough edge. So now they, in the Norwegians, they reprinted the base ex- exploration boards. Not only did they rebalance them a teeny little bit, but they also made it so that the iconography is now 100% consistent. And now they can introduce a literally unlimited number of new exploration boards without having to change any of the core rules. It's all printed information there. And I really appreciate it when they go to the bother of reprinting old old components just to make sure everything can harmonize properly. Yeah, agreed. 
So I've got a series of questions for you, Walker, because I, I think these are the... Are we going to do the questions first or are we going to go through bad points first? Uh, sure, we can go through bad points now. All right. I'll start with this one. I think the expansion is just largely unnecessary. Okay. In general. All right. I think there's enough in the base game. I think if this is a game that's in your collection and you play it constantly, like you have a collection of four games and you and your group play Feast for Odin all the time, then for sure pick this up. If you have a large collection and you play Feast for Odin occasionally, then I think I would just skip this. There is enough in the base game for Feast of Odin, enough different strategies and enough different ways to play it that this is a largely unnecessary expansion. Huh, I think I'm going to have to disagree with you there. So, okay, necessity is obviously going to be highly subjective, right? Strictly speaking, nothing we ever talk about on our show is ever necessary, except for the times when we talk about equity, which is absolutely necessary. But none of these games are necessary. Even Tigers and Euphrates is not necessary, <sighs> pa- though, though it pains me to say it. Here's the thing. So th- this was actually going to be some of the pointed questions I, I, I was I was going to ask because I think I, I can now speak to or at least understand where you're coming from. One of the questions is, does it change anything fundamental? No. Which it absolutely doesn't. I agree. Will it change anyone's mind about the base game? No. I agree. It wouldn't ch- If you don't like Feast for Odin, then the Norwegians is not going to change your mind, not even remotely. But here's the third question, though, and here's why I think where we, we might disagree. Does it break up any of the old strategies or introduce new ones? And I think the answer is yes. It does. But, and, but does it need more strategies? It, or so, does it need, you know, things that people don't, you know, can't see or because they don't play it enough, use those strategies over and over again? Do they need this expansion? N- no. The base game is still fine as it is. But it's not as though this expansion introduced animals into the system. That's right. Correct. If it introduced a whole bunch of new stuff into the system, then that might be a different discussion. But what it did was, with a very, very subtle amount of, of interference and with minimal rules overhead and minor component changes, it took existing stuff and it made it more viable and more central. Yeah, it balanced everything out. Like all the different ways to, you know, fill your board and or get victory points, it made them a lot more balanced. That's for sure. So then, so yeah. So then there's a question of whether, whether that makes it a, a necessity. I agree with you that it's not a necessity in that the base game was flawed or that Feast for Odin was deficient and didn't give you a very, very large decision space. But I will say this, having played with the Norwegians, I would never go back to the base game. I would not refuse to play the base game. But if anybody said, let's play a Feast for Odin, I'd rather play without the Norwegians, I'd probably give them the stink eye and say, why? If it's available, use it. Yes, I would agree with that for sure. And the other thing, the corollary to that is, would I introduce new players to the Norwegians? Because this is interesting. I've seen a lot of discussion about this online and I've seen very strong opinions. I'd like to hear your opinion. Oh, for sure. I had said that at the beginning. I think it's much easier to teach and show people how to play with these new boards. Because like you said, it scales with the number of players. It really groups together the actions. Like the other board seems to be like more uniform, like down like like a checkerboard, right? All these different actions. This seems to group them together in like sort of areas. It's very subtle, but to me, I could see it. And it, it really shows people, this is where you need to go to do this kind of action. This is what you need to go to here. And I think it, I think it overall makes the game easier to teach. I don't know whether I agree that it makes it easier to teach. I think that when there are fewer action spaces available, that helps the teaching load considerably. But in terms of the, again, in terms of the new things that need to be explained, we're talking about a new kind of action space, namely the fifth column. That's very, very easily explained. The artisan huts are easily ignorable. And even then it's relatively simple. It's like, look, this is the space where you build huts. These are the huts available to you. 
You have one that nobody else does. There you go. And yeah, I, I wouldn't, if I have the expansion available to me, I cannot imagine a context in which I would ever play a base game of A Feast for Odin if the Norwegians was, was available. And so to my mind, that really makes it an unqualified winner. Now, I don't feel that way about all expansions, even to expansions of good games. We had a similar discussion with respect to Core Worlds. We both like Core Worlds a great deal, and we tend to play with varying configuration of expansions when we have differing agrees about which ones are our favorites. But there are we would be fine playing, playing without some of the expansions in many contexts, and there, there's one that I would actively prefer not to play with. The same is true of Scythe. We have different... We have disagreements about which ones we prefer, but we would be happy with a variety of different configurations, and there's some we'd actively give pushback. So in the pantheon of expansions to good games, I don't think that it becomes a necessity only if it fixes a deficient base game. The fact that it stands on its own and I'd never want to play without it, I think is is what makes it... Again, I don't know if I'd use the word necessary, but maybe we're just talking about different terminology. But Maybe. All right, so I just have one actual game mechanism bad point and the rest are just physical bad points. It seems to really focus you to one strategy, whereas in the base Feast for Odin you could sort of jump around and do all sorts of things. This one felt as though it was really pushing you into a specialized thing, like, you you know, you're going to do your whaling, you're going to do your migration, you're going to do animals. It seemed to want to focus you into one area. Really? That's that's weird, because it's, it's under the aegis of this expansion that I did my first serious colonization, which is bizarre because I wasn't pursuing a colonization strategy. It wasn't one of the things that I was focusing on. I did it once or twice, which is one or two times more than I typically do it in a game of A Feast for Odin. And it was under the aegis of this expansion. Now, I will I will use this opportunity to just give a minor caveat to my explanation about you know, my statement that I would introduce a new player to the Norwegians right away. It is possible that by virtue of the added feeding pressure and the added pressure of a narrower action board that new players are going to lose by a larger margin than they would otherwise. But, and that is a problem for many people, but it's not a huge problem for me because A Feast for Odin, and we talked about this in our review of the base game, is sufficiently wide open and lets you do enough fun things that you just get to go and do fun things. And then at the end of the game, it's like, oh, well, I scored half as many points as you did, but I still got to do all this all this stuff. Sure, I shouldn't say playing the game focuses you in one area, but winning the game focuses you more into one area. Maybe. Then the rest are components things. Like the it comes with the new mountain board. Every turn there's these little tabs that come out and you fill them full of components and you know people are gonna draw from those components. This introduces one new one that's completely a different size than the rest. Seemed odd. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> And, uh, Shuff- shuffling in a whole bunch of tokens together when one of those tokens is noticeably longer than all the other ones is bizarre. And then I talked about it. I did a migration uh, strategy. This is where you you buy a bunch of boats and you migrate your Vikings and you get to cover the feast spaces so you have to feed them less. This one came with these little mini ones that were half the size. I just thought, you know, what was the point of that at all? <laughs> and And then... Mark didn't have a problem with it, but I just thought it odd because the old game, you know, was one, two, three, four workers. It was laid out across, and now it's one, two, three, four, one or two at the end. It made sense because it's the last action you do. It, it, I thought maybe, you know, teaching new players, it'd be kind of odd because, it, you know, it has this flow of needing more and more workers to do actions, then suddenly you only need one or two. I just thought... It seemed uh, out of place, especially it's, when you're so used to it. It's like this is the this is the four column. 
this is where I go to play a card, and suddenly it's now not there anymore. Now it's this other column. So I think it was just more the fact that I was more used to the old board. It is the least traveled column, so I, I respect the fact that it's on the far right. It does, however, and I think this issue would have persisted whether it is... Uh, you were about to make a political joke, weren't you? No, I thought you just did. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. I don't know if this problem would be made uh, any better if it were in the first column. It is... Some This never happened in the base game of A Feast for Odin, but when playing the Norwegians, sometimes people would think an action space was two in Vikings when it was actually three, or three Vikings when it was actually two. And I just think it's because it's that added visual load of there being five columns rather than four makes it a little bit more difficult to eyeball it. Because actually, if you look at it in terms of authentic counting, if anyone's familiar with that term, either in terms of uh, phenomenology or in terms of cognitive science, the number is actually three. We can't really authentically count past three. So four is already a little bit tricky, but going to five can be can be more difficult. So that that I agree with you is a little bit of visual processing difficulty. I wonder if they just put like a line down it or spaced it out just slightly. Maybe. If that would visually. And that's all the bad points I have. I have, and this is a very nebulous one, and this is the last question that I have pointedly about expansions. And that, that's that, does this bring this into the realm of too many bits? Which is a very subjective and very nebulous thing because I, I particularly have this experience when playing Eclipse with all the expansions included. There I very much get the too many bits vibe. Just in terms of sorting, occupying things, people start asking for a specific type of component. It's like, okay, where did I leave the mutagen bag? And suddenly you're, you're fishing around for all these things. And in A Feast for Odin, everything remains relatively sorted, and it was not a difficulty finding things, especially because I've got the uh, the very swank Meeple Realty insert. And just as a note, the Meeple Realty insert still works with all the, Nor- the new stuff from the Norwegians. It takes a little bit of doing, but it, but it all fits back in the box with the exception of the new component tray. But with the addition of the new component tray and the new expedition boards and the new artisanal huts, suddenly table space is a serious issue, especially if you expect everybody able to re- reach everything. And the action board isn't any bigger, uh, but when there's just a slightly more stuff, you start running into component uh, usability problems. This isn't a serious downside, and it doesn't stop me again from recommending the expansion at all possible playings, but it's not something I'm a huge fan of. Yeah, I, I didn't pick, there's so many components already in Feast for Odin, adding a few more wasn't a big deal because they, you know, had the trays for it. It wasn't. There's, there is a tipping point issue. So, so for example, when you're playing with three or four players, it is possible to arrange two trays such that everyone can reach everything. Three trays, though, that starts to get tricky, especially because they need to be laid out end to end. And just that alone starts making things a little bit a little bit more awkward. Again, not a deal breaker. It's just something to keep in mind, especially for people for whom table space is a premium. But again, these people, as you say, are probably not playing a Feast for Odin anyway. The other thing I was thinking of that we we're talking about this is, is the old huts. No one bought, you know, I wonder if they, because if they added so much new stuff, I wonder if it now that the old huts are now being almost eliminated because no one bought any of the standard huts that they used to. I did. Do you? All right. Well, yep. I'm saying it seemed to be less less uh, advantageous than it used to. That, I think, is could be a fair criticism against the base Feast for Odin game anyway. I true, mean, true, true. But, again, it, it depends on your on your preference. Like, I know lots of people who go very, very, very heavy into into migration like you do. I almost never do. I, I just It's just not what I'm focused on. It is possible, even though we've never played with this individual, that they love going into huts and filling it in with a whole bunch of wood and stone. Yeah, no, I usually don't do migrations. It's the first occupation I had in the first game. And in the second game, I just had so much money. It was like, eh. <laughs> so at the end of the day, I think 
insofar as we want to view it as as necessary or not, I probably think that it's a little more central than Walker does because I really like the added tension, the player scaling, and the extra stuff. Whereas Walker, I think you're entirely right to point out that the base game is fine as is, but you do you do think that the Norwegians does offer an improvement? Oh, yes? for sure. I would I would play if I would play with it if I had it every time. So that's where we come down on the Norwegians, and it's also spawned a new verb. When we talk about doing it, we speak of Norwegian. Yes, let's, let's do some Norwegian today. Are you down to Norwegian? I'm in. It's a, it's a regular English verb. I Norwegian, you Norwegian, they Norwegian. We all Norwegian. Yes, yes. Now, on to the topic of the week, which is theme and balance, or versus balance. Can theme be more important? Can you unbalance sides so theme wins out, or do you have to balance everyone the same? I'm not sure where I'm going to go with this. I think I'm just going to play off what Mark says and tell him how wrong he actually is. That's fine. I do have some things here, but we'll see. Okay, well, why don't we start with, I think, one of the uh, paradigmatic classics of the genre. Now, maybe I'm coming at this from a wrong premise. It's possible that when I I lay out this example, you'll be like, that's not been my experience at all. So Space Hulk. We love Space Hulk. We always have. We've been talking about Space Hulk now and then uh, since the very beginning of this podcast. Suicide Mission is a masterful instance of scenario design. It's a wonderful intro mission. It's a wonderful mission for experts. It is and will always be mission number one in all our hearts, no matter what fourth and oncoming editions say. They're just wrong. Suicide Mission is number one. Suicide Mission is not balanced. There's not a 50-50 win rate for Space Marines and Gene Steelers. Has that been your experience? 100%. Okay. Now, I don't know where the actual number lies. And if somebody was interested in, in compiling data, the, the, you know, the, the, the horizon's probably lost. I'm sure but, someone has. Well, this game has been played for 40 years, basically. It was released in, in 82, so a little, little under 40 years of play, people, people playing Suicide Mission. If I were forced to guess, I would probably guess that the Gene Steeler win rate is somewhere around 60 or 70%, maybe higher. And this is even amongst experienced players. Well, I think it's it's there for a reason, right? Not only do they want to show in the game in general that the Genesis are nasty and awful, but just this particular mission right off the beginning, you're in for trouble, you're going to die, and this is what this game is all about. Yeah, and it's just it's beyond just lip service to the title of the mission. It's about selling the theme. And it's about selling this feeling of hopelessness and overwhelming odds. And it's about setting the stage for genuine moments of triumph in the face of certain death, right? Because that, that's very much the theme of Space Hulk. And I have no enthusiasm whatsoever for 40K Universe, but I have tremendous enthusiasm for Space Hulk because I think that you can separate that element of Space Hulk out from the rest of the 40K lore. I don't really care about the lore. I Something, something, immortal, hive god, genius, intelligence, something, something, emperor. I don't know. I, I, I sincerely don't know. People tell me these things about 40K lore and I immediately forget it because I classify it under I don't care. And that's just my own blindness. And I wouldn't have it any other way, which is weird for me because normally I'm a stickler for, for, for these kinds of things. And normally I'm the first jerk to, to be like, well, I lost, but, you know, I don't think the scenario was really very fair. So it's not really a fair scenario if you think fairness is 50-50. Why, are we, why is it okay in Space Hulk? I think that's just the the strength of its design, right? I think it's it's strongly based around the scenarios themselves. It's not based around, you know, they're going to get these troops, they're going to get those troops. It's based on the layout of the map and and how they're to play the mission, much like claustrophobia is. You know, it's it's this is the what they're going to go against. You know, if if the map is laid out this way, then it's going to be harder for them to do. If it's made, laid out this way, it's going to be easier. And I think it's uh, just a scenario based game. 
Well, but it's interesting you bring up claustrophobia because I agree with you that the, the main reason why suicide mission is unbalanced in favor of the gene stealers is because that's how the map is set up. It's a static map. The spawn points are here. You move through here. You're, you're, you're incredibly slow little fire hydrants march along and die. But in claustrophobia, the map is randomized. You have a, you have a set tile stack, but you have a random tiles that might come out in random directions. And that can change the contours of how difficult it is. But again, and the designer of claustrophobia, Croc, has been very clear about this. The first scenario is heavily weighted in favor of the demons. He wants the demons to win most of the time, at least the first scenario. Other scenarios, it's a little more complicated. But the first scenario, which again, isn't as good as Suicide Mission, but it still has that sort of... I'll show it to new players and I don't mind replaying it over and over and over again. It's one of those great intro missions in that way. And again, it's about selling a universe. It's about selling a narrative. And I'm okay with it in Claustrophobia. I'm okay with it in Space Hulk. But sometimes I'm not okay with it and I don't know why. This is a process of self-discovery here, Walker. I want you to I want you to help well, explain it. I'll try to bring it to you. My next I have something here like co-ops, which sort of reads into it same when when it's a complete co-op game. You can give, like in Omega Protocol, one guy can play this giant robot. It is amazing. It kills everything. The other guy is a medic. He doesn't do much. Of, <laughs> he doesn't do much of anything. He's got a pistol. They are completely unbalanced characters. One is. I disagree. One is completely powerful and marches up the table, killing everything in its path. The other one just sort of is a utility. Don't get me wrong. is a useful utility, healing people, but he just does not do as much as this giant robot. And people are fine with that because it's a cooperative game and you're playing against, you know, it's the one versus all. Like, much like Descent or, or Star Wars, one character is not going to beat the villain. But grouped together, they do, right? So it's like a team dynamic. So... The, the characters in the team don't need to be balanced. You can have one that's super strong, and that's usually balanced out because there's one that's really weak, and they still feel useful because they have their own utilities, but it's just not as powerful as some of the other characters. I take your point. I just don't think it's particularly well applied in the case of Mega Protocol because what you're not mentioning is that the Rifleman, the character who, generally speaking, is, is left to the role of Medic, also deploys a whole bunch of death drones and is mowing down people, not necessarily at the same rate that the, that the giant meat sack is, but is definitely doing work. I agree with you, though, in the context of a co-op, that that element, if you want to call it thematic trappings, but in many cases it is, because co-op themes often don't work in competitive environments or vice versa, despite the recent push for every game in the world to have a co-op variant, which is another topic in and of itself. But so long as everybody gets to do something cool, that's the balance that you need. Everybody needs, it needs to be able to feel they did something neat in a co-op. And when it's a pure co-op, though, not one versus all, I just, once again, for the record, I don't care about balance. Balance, I think, can go out the window. If it's, uh, there are lots of designs where I'm okay if the win rate is approaching 100%, like, again, Spirit Island and difficulty level zero, I'm only done with it after doing that a lot. Or if the win rate is, is close to zero, like in Assault on Doomrock, where I'm okay with that too. If it's a pure co-op, I don't really care about balance. My next group of games is historical games. So if you take uh, Axe and Allies or any of our Quartermaster General and you put uh, teams, team members against each other, they are not equal. But as a team, they are. Like you have Germany, you have Japan. Japan is not so strong, but they, they're taking... 
you know, uh, pressure off of Germany so they, Germany can do, you know, what it needs to do. So obviously they're not balanced, but because of the theme and because of the team dynamic, it still all works. Same as in Axe and Allies, right? You know, uh, Italy, Japan, you know, Great Britain, all minor, but when grouped with their team, they, you know, take away the pressure and let the, the, the big powers do what they need to do. Yeah, Great Britain definitely wasn't a major factor I, no, in no, World no. War II. It was II. all it was, U.S., right? They, it was a very, very minor, incidental sort of thing. Okay it's, 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 okay, it's funny you mention World War II games because when it comes to historical war games, there are two major periods in which I'm interested, and both of them have their own unique problems with respect to this issue of, of, of thematic coherency and balance. Uh, Napoleonic War Games and World War II, and generally grand strategy. Uh, the, I play some more tactical stuff as well, but when it comes to grand strategic war games of those periods, you have some serious problems. Let's start with the Napoleonic Wars. If you're going to make it a purely two-player game, coalition versus French, France, no problem. You know, all things being equal, you can, in, in theory, balance things, although more on that in a moment when we talk about the unique perspective of historical games. But if you're going to open up the space a little bit more and try to make it multiplayer, as many do, for example, Mark McLaughlin's The Napoleonic Wars, or a lot of other grand strategy games, or even Empires in Arms back in the day, what is it to win as Prussia? How can you win the Napoleonic Wars as Turkey? What does that look like? And a lot of games that try to do that, they end up looking ridiculous. And that's one of the serious problems. And again, they, they often even fail at that, that, that previous criterion that we talked about in the context of a mega protocol. How often in a game of the Napoleonic Wars is Prussia going to get to do something cool? The best you can hope for as Prussia is to not die in 1807. Like, that's all you've got. It's it just it's a weird kind of, of 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 tension. Turkey is even worse in many contexts. Typically, the response to that is do something like diplomacy does, just abstract it away. But even there, a lot of people think Turkey's a dog. Uh, in, in Empires in Arms, nobody wants to play Turkey. It's a ten-hour game or, or twenty-hour game sometimes where Turkey's just going to get bagged on the entire time. Sure. So historical fidelity can be a straitjacket from which games cannot emerge. And, and that's why I respect people like Renaud Verlac, who talks about this a lot in the context of designing grand strategic Napoleonic games. He says, I can't fathom designing a grand strategic Napoleonic game that's more than two players. It just doesn't make any sense to him. And I, I really want, I love multiplayer grand strategic games, but you just can't do that in the Napoleonic context that I've seen. I, I just haven't found it. Yeah, not in a true historical way. It, exactly. And at that point, if it's going to be pure fantasy, then what's the point? I'm not, I'm definitely not one of those hardcore gangyag. I'm not a consim guy who, who, who like looks down and say, well, you know, that's so, you know, the second division was never there. So the fact that you could deploy the second division there means this isn't a war game. This is something else. Basically, you should go play Stratico. I'm not one of those guys. Okay, maybe sometimes I'm kind of one of those guys, but I'm, I'm not always one of those guys. But, you know, at the point where you have to design a five-player game where France and Prussia are playing by the same victory conditions, I haven't seen it done well. And I'm skeptical that it ever could be done well. So let's talk about World War II. Because I've been thinking about this specifically, actually, about verisimilitude and thematic coherence and historical fidelity. And this is, this is purely a rhetorical question. I don't have an answer. Some people assert in war game terms, that the fall of France was effectively precipitated by something akin to the Germans rolling boxcars on a couple of key campaign rolls, right? You understand what I'm getting at? Yes. Are you sympathetic? To, not necessarily that we are endorsing this historical view, but can you see where that historical view comes from? No. Oh, okay. So, well, the claim is that the precipitous fall of the French army is something that looks obvious in hindsight, but it was by no means inevitable 
and it could have gone a lot of other ways. And the shock that the other European powers had, the shock that even many of the people in the German army had was entirely appropriate because of the strength of the French army. I agree with that, but it could not have gone another way being led the way it was. They were they were fighting World War One still, and Germany was fighting World War Two. I respect that, but anyway, suffice to say that there's there's some historical disagreement. Yes. But no matter how you slice it, it was a strange event. The nature of the of the surrender and the speed with which it happened was quite drastic. And if you're designing a grand strategic game that starts before 39, you have to come up with sane movement rules, and you have to come up with sane surrender rules, and you have to come up with sane supply rules, and yet all the time bearing down on you is this overwhelming pressure to be able to model what actually happened. Now, when it comes to things like Barbarossa, that's no problem. Barbarossa modeling that in tradi- traditional, whether it's grand strategic or just strategic, whatever, not difficult to do. You know, it's a relatively straightforward kind of movement of troops. Well, vastly complicated, of course, but nothing particularly weird happened. Operation Sea Lion, well, you know, it was always a long shot. Modeling the possibility of a long shot naval invasion, well, you're going to do that for Normandy landings anyway. So that's another thing. But the fall of France was weird. And how much you want to alter your core systems to allow for that specific thing that actually happened, I'm not sure how easy that does. And the more I look at grand strategic World War II games that start in 39 or earlier than that, whether it's Triumph and Tragedy, whether it's things like Cataclysm, I still want to really want to try Cataclysm. I wonder how much violence is being done so as to allow what happened in France to occur. And again, as I say, this is a rhetorical question. I don't have an answer to that. I just think it's an interesting design challenge. Well, I think that's why the the specific Axe and Allies games did so well, like the D-Day and the Guadalcanal and the Battle of the Bulge ones, because they took just smaller battles and played them out and had could have more control over what actually happened, as opposed to doing like a 10-year, you know, jaunt through Germany. It's true. that 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 As I say, this is a unique problem facing grand strategic war games. Now, this is... And for what it's worth, a lot of people agree with you and, and point to this and say this is why you don't do grand strategic war games unless it's at the level of, say, Quartermaster General, where it's very abstracted and weird stuff is already happening and you can model everything on event cards and, and, right. and everything everything goes okay. It's just I – for someone who loves Triumph and Tragedy, for someone who loves a whole bunch of grand strategic Napoleonic war games, warts and all, it's just something I've been thinking about and I'm not – I'd be I'd be interested to hear other other consumers' opinions about about things like that. And then there's the fact, quite apart from all this, that many historical war games have a bias towards the actual winner. And this is true of all levels, whether it's ta- you know man to man or squad based or tactical, all the way on up. Uh, a particular, and this is true of even very very light war games. I'm thinking of, of things like the commands and colors games. Most commands and colors games, and most of the scenarios designed by Richard Borg, have a very heavy prejudice in favor of who actually won the battle. Maybe that's fidelity to the historical details on the ground. Maybe that's just because how he designed it that way. I don't know. Well, maybe they want to design it how the battle actually went and then how, and then let you do the weird thing that turns the battle the other way. And it's like, oh, if they had only done this or if they had only, you know, deployed their troops slightly differently then something else would have happened, right? So maybe... You know, again, coming back to that that early criterion, if you still get to do something cool, I'm okay with that. I would also vastly prefer it also if designers were a little bit more transparent 
especially in scenario-based games, uh, because I think there is a sort of default supposition that players of equal skill should have a roughly 50-50 win rate. I don't know if that's a fair presupposition, but I think it's something that a lot of people come to the table with in the back of their minds. And I would very much appreciate it if Croc, instead of just on a forum on BoardGameGeek or TrickTrack saying, oh yeah, the first scenario, the humans are going to get stomped on. If that had just been in this scenario, like just, sure, there's the thematic trappings, but everywhere in the claustrophobia rulebook in, in, in the, the first edition. I still haven't played 1643 yet, by the way. I blame you. You know, there's talk about how, Fair. you know, the humans are doomed, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, the gamer in me would just appreciate a little heads up and say, oh, by the way, you're probably going to lose. Yeah, but would that take away from, like, would they just, like, give up? It's like, oh, we don't have a chance. So, yeah, whatever. I'm just going to move there because there's no chance we're going to win anyway. So, blah, blah, blah. You know, there are some people that would play that way, right? So, if you don't, if you do say this is, you know, what, 80% win ratio for this side, they're like, you know, well, what's the what's the point? You know, I'll try this, but, you know, bah, you know, it's going to lose anyway. So, why, why invest anything into it? You've got a point. I don't know. And the final example of this actually is not a historical war game, but uh, somebody who comes from a, a bit of a historical war game background. Cole Worley, when uh, after the publication of Root, there was a big discussion about how weak the lizards were. And watching the evolution of his stance, at least the public evolution of his stance, has been fascinating because his first response was, yep, lizards, lizards are weak, deal with it, part of the design. Maybe someday I'll design a tournament set of rules for people who really, really care about stuff like that. And it wasn't, he wasn't being condescending, but it certainly sounded like in his statements that if you really wanted an even win rate for all the factions, he, he didn't share that concern, which, isn't, which is a perspective. It's not necessarily one that I have, but it's, it's an interesting perspective, and he, he looked like he was willing to defend it. He's not defending it anymore. The balance changes that were meant to bring the lizards up to parity, uh, and also there were some minor balance changes to buff up the cats. Uh, the, the Marquise de Cat, they're now the core rules. And in the uh, third printing going forward, they're just in the core rules. There's no mention of the past stuff. And so I, I do think that it's interesting that, uh, you know, designers sometimes don't seem to care much about balance, but then they, I'd be interested in talking to Cole Worley and seeing what changed his mind. He hasn't, he's been a little bit silent on that issue. I was wondering if people want to just play with whatever faction they want to, whereas we look in the book and say these factions play what these. If you're playing with X number of players, then this is the layouts. Is it is is that list optional or is this or is that set in stone? This is what you should do. It's just a recommended setup. In in, in root, there's a list of recommended setups, and they they strongly discourage certain kinds of setups, but they don't tell you that it's against the rules. I think they should have done that, right? Because then you could have gone a little even wilder with some things like, you know, these are way unbalanced if they're played with just these two. Whereas, you know what I mean? It's like the, just like the team thing, right? This is unbalanced, but if you team it up with these three and they work together, then it's going to give you a whole different scenario. I think they, I think it would have been a better game for it. I think that was part of the criterion though, because if you stray from the recommended setups, it's mostly about how much room there is to build buildings. If you let only one building-heavy faction in the game, they're probably going to have an easy go of it. And that, that's okay. That's one kind of problem. The bigger problem is when you have too many building-heavy factions involved in the game, then it's just not fun. You just don't have any room to do anything. True that. Which is, a, again, a different kind of balance constraint. As I say, all things being equal, different kinds of games, I expect different levels of balance. And the more thematic a game is, the more I'm inclined to cut it some slack. You know, if you design a game like Coimbra, or you design a game like even Hansa Teutonica, and for whatever reason, not all starting positions are equally viable by a considerable margin, there's no reason for that to persist into the end of the game. Because whether we're kind of meh on something like Coimbra, or whether we love a game like Hansa Teutonica, there's no reason to have that imbalance persist. Because, you know, there's, That's right. there's just no need. 
But the more thematic trappings you have, the more the more I'm inclined to give you give you some some leeway, with certain exceptions. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to you know air my indecision out loud in this way that we have. No, I like. If there's reason, like you said, if there's reasons behind it, if there's a story there and they and it makes sense, and there's a story behind it, and they sort of explain while you're playing why this is happening, then then I'm perfectly fine with it as well. I still wish it could be a little more transparent, but anyway, I don't. I'm not one of those people that's sympathetic to the joy of discovery. I like everything to be laid out for me. I'm I'm a very simple-minded, plodding individual like that. Anyway, so that's going to close us out for this week for so very wrong about games. Thank you very much for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the so very wrong about games Facebook page, or you can check out our board game geek guild, which is guild number three two three six, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>